Bibles with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. This is printed in your pew Bible there on page 983. It's also printed in your uh, worship guide on page 10. This morning we're going to be looking at Colossians 1 verse 24 through chapter 2 verse 5. So hear God's word this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you or with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we have started a new series in the book of Colossians uh, a few weeks ago. And in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison... Uh, to the believers at the church at Colossae. And he's writing to warn them of the false teaching that was taking place there uh, that was hindering uh, potentially their faith of the brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we've said, that the theme in the book of Colossians is that Christ is enough. He is sufficient. Nothing more needs to be added to faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so this morning we're going to continue to see this theme develop as we look here at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. But as we do so, let us go before the Lord one more time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we come as those who are hungry, needing to be fed this morning on your truth. And so we pray to that end, that your spirit would come and tend to your word that you would illumine our hearts so that we might see these glorious riches of the gospel this morning, that we might turn from sin and turn to Christ, our only hope. Lord, we ask if you would do this, we would give you the praise and the glory as we see evidence of you bearing fruit in our lives. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Well, companies have been using mission statements for many, many years. For example, the Coca-Cola company's mission statement is to refresh the world. And Google, which most every one of us use on a daily basis, their search engine, Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And the ride-sharing company Lyft, their mission statement 
is to reconnect people through transportation and bring communities together. Now, each one of these companies' mission statements helps to guide them by defining who they are and why they do what they do as a business. Well, many years ago in 1989, Stephen Covey wrote a a book entitled The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Some of you may have read it. I remember my father having a copy of it. It did really well. It sold over 25 million copies to date. But in that book, he says that not only do companies need to have personal mission or mission statements, but individuals need to craft their own personal mission statement to live by. This was part of his second habit that he says to begin with the end in mind. Now, I imagine that most of us here this morning have never written out a personal mission statement. Maybe a few of us have. But whether we have or we haven't, each one of us is driven by something or someone to act, to think, and to do the things that we do. And so let me begin this morning by asking this question. What are you all about? I mean, what gets you up in the morning? What motivates you and drives you to say the things that you do, to think the things that you think, and to do the things that you do? Is it guilt? Is it competition from others? Is it pleasure? Success? Is it a relationship? Or is it out to prove someone who told you when you were younger that you wouldn't amount to anything? Or is it something else that compels you to do what you do each day? Well, the Apostle Paul was very, he's crystal clear on what drove him. And I think Paul was way ahead of his time, even way before Stephen Covey, at crafting a personal mission statement. Because we turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, we read there as Paul addresses the Ephesian elders with these words. He says, I account my life of no value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry given to me by the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul was all about. Paul was truly set on knowing and testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what got him up in the morning. This is what fueled his ministry to do what he did, the opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this morning, by way of looking at Paul's ministry, we're going to investigate three realities that will become increasingly evident in the lives of true followers of Christ. First, the believer grows in faithful endurance of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, the believer's drive to share the gospel with the lost intensifies. And lastly, the believer increasingly invests himself or herself in the lives of other believers through discipleship. And Paul says in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now Paul uses two words there that in our American culture seem paradoxical. Rejoicing or joy and suffering. Now, the idea of suffering, much less enjoying or having joy in the midst of suffering, that's baffling to us as Americans because our worldview that is thrust upon us is the complete opposite. Right? Our culture goes to great lengths to maximize comfort and ease. We avoid choices that might even bring in discomfort or pain or suffering in our lives. 
And so when Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings, we don't really have a category for that. And quite frankly, it makes us a little uncomfortable. But surprisingly enough, there are 18 references in the New Testament where rejoicing or joy and suffering are linked together. Suffering and the Christian life go hand in hand. Paul says as he addresses the young churches that he was planting there in Acts 14, he says to them, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself tells us in John 15, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. In other words, suffering is necessary and expected if we're going to follow Jesus. And Paul understood this idea very clearly because his life was marked by suffering. Not just suffering in general, but suffering for the sake of the gospel in Christ's church. In 2 Corinthians 11, he catalogs all the ways that he has suffered in his ministry to that point. Beaten on numerous occasions with 39 lashes, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, stoned, and many other dangers that he experienced. But all of this suffering that Paul experienced came as a result of his ministry that was given to him by the Lord Jesus. And as Paul is discipling his young disciple Timothy, he writes to him in 2 Timothy 2, and he says this, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul exerted great energy and suffered on behalf of the Colossian believers. He goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 2, to reiterate his struggle, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all who have not seen me face to face. See, Paul was more concerned, not so much with himself, but being obedient to all that God was calling him to. But the joy that Paul was able to experience in the midst of suffering was grounded in knowing that he was united to the Lord Jesus Christ and that his suffering was filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, as I read that, you may have thought, okay, what does that mean? It's a very provocative statement there, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What Paul is not saying is that something was left out that Christ did not fulfill or left unfinished. Because as we come to a hard passage like this or verse like this, we have to let the other scriptures interpret scripture. And if we look earlier in verse 14, Paul says these words. He says, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Nothing's left unfinished. Christ accomplished salvation for his elect. And just a few verses later in verse 22, he says, He, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So what does Paul mean when he's filling up through his suffering what was lacking? That Christ had finished his work that the Father had given him and he ascended to heaven where he now sits ruling and reigning on his throne. But his body, that is the church, is still on the earth. Enduring suffering because sin and Satan still abound until Christ returns yet again. And so therefore, Christ's suffering is lacking because of the divinely appointed necessity that suffering be endured by all believers in that we suffer for Christ 
and with Christ. Paul goes on to explain this in 2 Corinthians 4 further. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Here, listen to this. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. See, because we who are believers in Christ, are joined to Christ, this means that we share all the blessings that are His. Every one of them. Which includes the privilege of suffering. Peter explains in 1 Peter 4, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is precisely why Paul could say he rejoices in his suffering. Because just as God used the suffering of his own son to redeem a sinful people, so Paul knew that God would use his suffering to bear fruit, not only in his own life, but in the lives of those around him that he ministered to. This is the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering like our Savior suffered. We endure suffering now so that we might experience glory later. Suffering is part of God's ordained plan for our sanctification and to grow us to look more like Himself. It's part of our purifying us of the sin and dross in our lives. And so that when material things and pleasures and comforts and relationships are stripped from us through the means of suffering... We see where we're placing our hope and trust outside of Christ into the created things and not to the Creator. Think about what you and I often believe in the midst of going through suffering. See, often we think of our suffering as proof that, that God's absent from our lives. He's withholding His love from us. See, look at what the circumstances He's giving me. He doesn't truly love me. He's not with me in the midst of this. That's what you and I often believe. But what if we realized that suffering actually assures us of God's presence? Bearing the marks of compassion and love by God, working through His sovereignty over every aspect of our lives. See, according to God's Word, suffering says precisely the opposite about Him that we often interpret it. Suffering is evidence that God in His mercy and in His love has made us His own children. And then He's now in the process of changing us to look more like Himself. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, Because of our union with Christ, we are heirs of God. But he puts this caveat. We are heirs of God provided we suffer with Him so that we might be glorified with Him. God takes us through suffering so that we can be glorified with Christ and used by Him in His kingdom work, just as Paul availed himself to be used in his suffering for Christ's purposes. Apostle Paul counted his suffering not only a joy, but a privilege because he understood his suffering in light of the grand purposes and plan of God. 
he would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 4 that I read just a moment ago, he says, I don't lose heart in the midst of my suffering. And here's why, verse 17. This light momentary affliction, again, understanding all the suffering that Paul endured, he describes it as this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see what he's saying? Short-term suffering for long-term blessing and glory. See, it seems so counterintuitive to us, but often affliction is the tool of liberation that God uses in our lives to bring us into the freedom that He's created us to experience. In our suffering, God is refining our view of who He is. And He's forging a greater understanding of what it means to be wed to Him and united with Him. So when God calls us to suffer, He's granting us opportunity. Opportunity to become more like Him through our suffering. He's granting us opportunity to suffer with our Savior so that we can understand in greater depth the love that our Savior has and the extent that He went to buy us back. Christ Himself says in Matthew 5, He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, if we, like Paul, viewed our suffering through the lens of God's love and care for us, it would change everything in the way that we approach the circumstances of our lives. Instead of producing angst, dread, accusation against God, suffering could become the impetus for rejoicing in our lives as He uses it for His glory and the good of ourselves and those around us who are watching us walk through this to minister to them in ways that we will never understand. Suffering is not just for suffering's sake and suffering is not meaningless. It is intentional and purposeful in the hands of God. Next, we see how the believer's drive to share the gospel with the lost intensifies. Paul explains his call by God, looking in verse 25 here. For the sake of the church, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul's call was unique. If you remember his story of conversion... As he's blinded on the road to Damascus and God blinds him and he sends Ananias to go after him to lay hands on Paul so that he can be healed of his blindness. But as God sends Ananias out to Paul, he says this. He says, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And hear these words. For I will show him how much he must suffer for for my name's sake. See, Paul was the Colossians' divinely appointed servant, steward, who they directly owed their understanding of the gospel and salvation to. Because Paul made known to the Colossians the mysteries hidden for ages so that they might too believe in the God who he believed in and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul here intentionally uses this word mystery because in that day, the Gnostics and the false teachers had claimed that word and they were saying there was this, this secret knowledge that you must aspire to and attain, but only a few can do it. But you all need to aspire for it. You've got to add something more to your faith. The mystery that Paul is speaking of is not a secret knowledge. It is the plan of God, what was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. But now that Christ had come on the scene, the one who all prophecy had been pointing forward to, he'd come in the flesh. Now that mystery had been revealed, no longer concealed and veiled. But not only to the Jews, but now he says this mystery has been revealed to the Gentiles, you and I. And Paul is sent as a messenger to carry this message forward. Now, for most of us, just mentioning the word evangelism starts to turn our stomach, right? It stirs up insecurity in us because we don't feel adequate. We don't feel prepared of how to share our faith with others. It stirs up guilt in us because we know that we should be sharing our faith. The Bible tells me to, but I don't know how and I don't want to and I don't. So we feel guilty. And on the rare occasion that we're presented with the opportunity that we feel like, okay, I should be sharing my faith here, fear wells up within us. And we become overwhelmed by it, and so we shrink back. And what does this do? It leads us right back to, into guilt and shame once more. So we decide to leave it to the professionals. Pastors, those who are trained in how to share their faith, those who are gifted, because that's what we often want to say, well, I'm not gifted to share my faith, so I'll let others do that. Well, the reality is that God has called each one of His children to faithfully proclaim Christ to the lost. After His resurrection, Jesus says to His disciples in Mark 6, He says, Go into the world, proclaim throughout the whole creation. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. God calls all of his followers to proclaim his name wherever they go. It's not a call that we can take to choose or leave. If we are growing in Christ... If the gospel is continuing to grow and flourish in our hearts, we will share that gospel with others around us. As you've heard said from this pulpit often, a growing Christian is one who is also a reaching Christian. And this is where I think that we often make sharing our faith much more difficult than it ought to be. We complicate the idea of evangelism when we put it into this comparison game. And what I mean by that is we start to compare ourselves with others that we see who are more articulate and they're bolder in confronting others and presenting the gospel to others. And that's just not us. Or we compare ourselves with those whose biblical knowledge is far superior than ours that we think. And so we're scared that if a skeptic asked us questions, we would be at a loss of how to respond and so we don't step out in faith or we compare ourselves with those who have had success in sharing the gospel and leading people to Christ and we haven't and so we just give up and we don't try but in this comparison game what's lost is the reality is that we are making sharing our faith about us not about Christ and those who need to hear him 
See, we don't have to compare ourselves with one another to share the hope that has changed our lives. God promises to equip each and every one of his saints to complete the task that he's calling us to do and the work that he's giving us. Paul says in Romans 12, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you hear that? According to the measure of faith that God has assigned, God has gifted you. Don't compare yourself with what other people have or what you don't have. God knows what you have, and it's enough. It's sufficient. He's given it to you. That's why he knows it's enough. But notice here this key in verse 29. Paul says, in regard to sharing the gospel, he says this, For, I, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that sentence, at first glance, that's not how I thought it would read. For I struggle with all my energy. That's how it seems like it would read, Right? But no, he says, I struggle with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. See, Paul grasped that it was not about his eloquence. He told the Corinthians, I don't come with you with lofty speech. He comes availing himself so that he might be used by God to proclaim his truth. He's not worried about the tough questions that may arise because he knows that God's power will speak in and through him. My uh, MacBook computer has this issue where the battery, when it gets to about like 30 or 35%, it just all of a sudden dies unannounced. And I'll just be working along and then shuts down. But if I plug it in and plug in the adapter and plug it into the, to the wall, it'll run forever. And I think that's similar to us in the Christian life. Like if we try to endure the suffering that God allows in our lives and try to do it in our own strength, or if we try to work out of our own giftedness and sharing our faith, we're going to be depleted and frustrated, and ultimately we're going to die out. But we have an endless supply that God is providing us with His power. And this should really relieve a lot of the burden that most of us feel about sharing our faith because most of us think that it's about what we can do to persuade somebody, somebody who's unconvinced of the gospel, and how my airtight argument and presentation is going to fix this problem that this person has. But this relieves the burden because it's not about us. God tees it up for us and says, look, I'm not only going to provide you with the opportunity and the conversation and the power to speak my words, I'm going to handle the results that fall after that. All we have to do is avail ourselves to be used in the service of God to take his gospel to the lost. Okay, well, how does evangelism move from being something that we see as a duty and a fear to being a joy and a privilege? What intensifies our urgency and our drive to share the gospel with the lost is more and more understanding, grasping the preeminence of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. As we become more and more gripped of Christ's suffering on our behalf to free us and make us His own, then we want to be obedient. We want to give Him the glory that is due His name. 
And because of being set free ourselves from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death, we want to tell others where they too can find lasting peace and freedom in the person of Christ. Paul called it a joy to suffer through the proclamation of the gospel. He knew that it would benefit others. Who are you uniquely being called by God to reach with the gospel? Who do you have God-given access to, affinity for, and favor with that you can share the truth? Are you making yourself available that God can use you in these people's lives to bring about radical transformation as the gospel impacts them? Avail yourself trusting in His power and diligently working with all His energy that He will powerfully work in you so that then you might see the fruit of God's work in the life of that brother or that sister that comes to faith. I think to grow in this area of evangelism, two practical things must be cultivated in our lives. First, we have to begin praying for opportunities to share the gospel and pray for specific people with whom we want to share our faith with. Because I don't know about for you, but I know for me, my experience, if I'm praying for God to bring opportunities to share the gospel, I am way more apt to seize those opportunities and see them as they come. But if I'm not praying for those other people, and if I'm not praying for those opportunities, I tend to find myself within this comfortable fog of selfishness and silence and being oblivious to what God brings into my life. We have to begin praying for the specific people, those coworkers, those classmates, those neighbors that we want to see come to faith. And secondly, we also have to cultivate not only praying for opportunities, but even creating evangelistic opportunities. Because see, when you are nurturing your heart and your heart is being bathed by the gospel, you're going to find creative ways to give it away to others. I think Paul's example with the Philippian jailer is a great example to see this play out. If you remember the story, Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and all of a sudden God brings this earthquake, and their chains fall off, the doors open, and Paul could have easily walked out, sticking his tongue out to the guards, going, heading out to freedom now. But what does Paul do? He stops and gives the gospel to a suicidal guard who was so shaken by what he had just witnessed. That's creating gospel opportunities and seizing gospel opportunities with Christ's truth. Now, I get it. Some of us are saying, okay, Chad, but that's Paul. We're talking about me here. I'm not Paul. I don't have the boldness he had. There's no way I could do what Paul did. Well, let me remind us that Paul had the same great commission that you and I have. And Paul had the same gospel message that you and I have. And Paul had to deal with the same authority and submission and fear issues that you and I have. But we have the same Holy Spirit at work that was in Paul's life at work in our life as well. Will we utilize that Spirit? Going in faith, in boldness, because He is going to work in and through us. Lastly, We see how the believer increasingly invests himself or herself in the growth of other believers through discipleship. Paul says in verse 28, he says, In Christ we we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, it wasn't just enough for Paul to evangelize and see people come to faith in Christ. Paul wanted to see them grow to spiritual maturity in Christ and grow in greater holiness. He desired to see them continue on in their faith. Where did Paul come up with this mission? He borrowed it from his Savior. Christ's goal to reconcile us to the Father, he says, is to present us holy and blameless, without accusation, above reproach to the Father. Paul was striving to see his brothers and sisters perfected in the faith. This is why he was so earnest in his prayers for the Colossians. Why he wrote letters from a prison cell to a people he had never met and seen face to face. Why he gave them direction and spiritual guidance from the jail cell. Paul was discipling these young believers. See, at its core, disciple making is teaching. One pastor puts it this way, he says, In discipling others, we are helping others in the body of Christ to know why we pray, why we share the gospel, why we join the church, why God's knowledge of God's word and his sovereignty impacts our lives, and much, much more. See, in discipling others, we're modeling and teaching others towards a greater love for Christ and obedience to him. Well, what is it that drives us to actually step out in faith, to engage and invest in the lives of one another? It's love. Yes, love for other people, but more importantly, love for our Savior and understanding His love for us and those whom He's called us to go and minister to. Later in chapter 3, Paul admonishes the Colossians and he admonishes us this morning. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It should be our desire and our aim to see not only ourselves come to greater maturity in Christ and holiness, but also those around us who are journeying along in the faith with us. Even though all of us are not teachers, Paul says we're all called to teach and to admonish in the context of loving relationships that we have within the body as one another speak truth into each other's lives so that we might grow more and more to look like Christ. Our mission here as a church is to join Jesus in his work of advancing his kingdom and spreading the gospel to the lost. There's that evangelism piece. But not only that, but to equipping the saints to worship and serve. There's that discipleship. As your leadership, this is what we desire our people to be all about. This is what we pray towards, that we would become so enamored with the gospel of what Christ has done for us that it would send us out into our communities, into our spheres of influence, proclaiming these glorious riches that have been given to us in Christ. And then as we invest our time and our energy and our money and our resources into other people's lives with the gospel, that God might grant us the privilege to see greater holiness come about in the lives of other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the privilege we have to suffer so that we might fill up what is lacking. We might sit back and watch God at work and have a front row seat of it to see Him do His gospel work in removing sin and growing one another to holiness. See, the thing that we need the most as followers of Christ is the one thing that has the power to cause us to change and grow. And that is the gospel. See, often I think we fall into a pattern of thinking that 
we enter into a relationship with Christ with the gospel, but then somehow we graduate on to bigger and better things. No, we enter into the, go- into the relationship with Christ through the gospel, and we only deepen and deepen and deepen our understanding of this glorious truth because we will mine it for the rest of our lives and still never come to fully grasp it. If your faith is in Christ, you are counted holy and righteous. But at the same time, you are being made holy and righteous. We are becoming what has already been declared about us in Christ. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are once and for all justified before Christ. Your sin no longer able to condemn you. But yet now, and you're in the process of being sanctified to look more like your Savior. And the fact is, because we are united to Christ, we are guaranteed that God is taking us on a trajectory of greater spiritual maturity and holiness as He prepares us for the life to come. And here's the incredible truth that God has brought about in the way His dynamics of His kingdom. In His infinite wisdom, the way that He brings about greater holiness and maturity is through the delivery system, among others, of other brothers and sisters speaking God's Word into our lives. Again, I get it, not only with evangelism, but most of us are thinking, okay, I'm at a loss of even to begin of how to initiate a discipling relationship with someone else. Who am I to invest in someone else's life? Or if we're going to invest in discipling relationships with our family and with friends and with coworkers and classmates, we have to initiate that conversation. But even further than that, we have to ask the Spirit time and time again to take those conversations below the surface to spiritual and eternal things so that we might see that relationship deepen and see God at work within it. And in discipling others, it's going to involve perseverance on our part. As we spend time with that person, we're not going to see the progress and the fruit and the time and the manner that we'd like to see it. But that person might even fall back into old sin patterns. And that might frustrate us. We have to be mindful and remember of God's patience with us and His commitment to us as well as that person that we're discipling. Always being assured that God is at work. And our love for that brother and sister, it also compels us to sacrifice and to give within the relationship. You're going to have to make sacrifices to spend time with that person. And the enemy's going to want to tell you that look at those sacrifices and respond with bitterness or even respond with pride of what you're having to give up for the sake of someone else. But I remind us what Christ said. He said, it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. And as we humbly avail ourselves to move into the lives of other people in order to see God use us to grow them in spiritual maturity and holiness, we have to remind ourselves as we're sitting in that conversation before that person, what they need is not me. It's Christ. I am not their Savior. I'm merely one of many instruments in the Savior's hand that He is using to transform this person before me more and more into His image. And I just get to be privileged to be a part of that. Who in your life might God be calling you to initiate a discipling relationship with? Who's God desiring you to come alongside to help teach how to study His Word? 
to help someone understand how to feed upon God's Word by themselves that they've never understood before. Or that man or that young man who is struggling with purity issues where you can come alongside and speak into their life, remind them of the promises of God's truth, to encourage them. Or that young woman, that young mother who's struggling with her calling, that you can come alongside and help invest and speak into. Or maybe that married couple who is struggling that you could speak your wisdom into, not because your marriage is perfect and not because yours yours is not wrought with failures and successes, but that you can speak into it with God's Word. And it can be an encouragement and life-transforming and life-giving for that couple or that person. See, if Christ is in us, we have nothing to fear and nothing to wait on. And unfortunately, our culture tells us that as you get older, that's your opportunity to now coast and remove yourself and pull back because you've earned it for all the many years that you've labored. But that's not the way of the Christian life. As we have many more birthdays and as we grow in understanding God's Word and as we experience life, we gain greater wisdom that we are called to pour back into the lives of others so that we might build up the body of Christ to greater maturity and holiness in Christ. We have all the resources at our disposal to use. Nothing we have to wait on and nothing we have to fear. And when we do this, Paul says in Colossians 2.2, we do it to these ends, to have our hearts encouraged. I don't have to tell you, each one of us at some point in time has had someone else invest into our lives and we've seen the fruit of that. We've seen how God has used it to bring about conviction, to bring about encouragement, to bring growth in our lives. But not only encouragement, Paul says, but he says also being knit together in love. You've also seen how that dynamic and that relationship has brought greater intimacy in the relationship because of what you share together. But even further, Paul goes on and says, in order to experience all the riches of full assurance, of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. All of these things proving toward this end that we might grow to understanding greater depth and greater intimacy of the love that Jesus Christ has for us. Paul began this section and he ends it with rejoicing over the Colossians. Verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness in your faith. What caused Paul to go to great lengths to suffer for a people he never met to share a gospel that would bring so much hardship in his life. Only the undeserved love and mercy of Jesus Christ lavished upon a broken, hopeless sinner could cause someone to expend themselves in the lives of others for the sake of Christ. But nothing, nothing could be more worthwhile Nothing could be more strategic and nothing could be more of a privilege than for us to expend ourselves, even to the point of suffering, for the sake of Christ, so that others might benefit and that our Savior might be ultimately glorified. See, what God called Paul to, it was impossible. He called him to minister to the Gentiles and suffer greatly while doing it. It was an impossible task. And I know this morning, many of us are sitting here thinking that same thing about our own lives. Okay, what Paul's laid out is impossible. 
there's no way I can continue walking through the suffering that God has brought in my life right now. There's no way I can share my faith. My life is a mess. Who am I to be a witness for Christ? There's no way I can invest my life into other brothers and sisters. Well, here's the reality. The good news is that the work is not for us to do. If we try to live the Christian life, not only are we going to be ineffective in our own strength, but we'll ultimately give up and we'll be frustrated and defeated and ultimately die. The reason why Paul was able to work diligently and the reason why you and I are able to work diligently proclaiming Christ is because His power is at work in and through us. And so we can work striving because He will accomplish everything He wills in and through our lives. Let us avail ourselves. Let us open our mouths. Let us testify to these glorious riches that have been entrusted to us, that have transformed our life into the lives of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come on the heels of hearing your word, who are we to take these riches, this mystery revealed in Christ, to the nations? Lord, that is how you have designed for your kingdom to work and to expand. That you've entrusted it to us. Lord, thankfully it is not on us in our own strength to do so. I pray that you would embolden us with great vigor to go out with this message that has changed our lives. Not to bottle it up and keep it to ourselves, but to take it to all who need to hear it. And Lord, you have placed us strategically in relationships, those who need to hear your truth, both those who are unconvinced and those who are despairing. And you've given us the, the antidote. You've given us the healing balm that we can provide for them in your word, in your gospel. So would you allow us to take that? May it become more beautiful to us so that we might want to give it away to all who would hear so that they too might know the riches of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's matchless name and for your glory. Amen.